Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Our uh, sermon text today is Exodus 25. It's verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to repeat this because uh, somebody may be watching the sermon that doesn't watch the Prophecy Update. Uh, Today's sermon is introductory. It's preparations for the tabernacle. And there's a lot of information about uh, just a very few things. And so don't get overwhelmed in your head. And uh, you have to uh, kind of go along with understanding that everything that the Lord is describing here has a purpose of showing us Christ. And so we're going to see that when these implements start to be noted. But for today, we're going to get just the, the calling forth of those things. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage as long as it's taken in context with what is coming, I, I, I don't see how you can't enjoy everything for the next how many weeks. Marvelous stuff. Um, so anyway, Exodus 25, 1 through 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. This is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so shall you make it. The day that I typed this sermon was the day after the tornado on Siesta Key. That was a Sunday that we had the tornado. That Sunday I got home and absolutely nothing went right with the video work. It didn't get done, all of it, until about 12.30 that night. Monday morning I was tired and I was frustrated. So much so that when I went to my morning job cleaning them all, I could hardly get the mental strength to talk to the Lord about the upcoming sermon, which is something I do every single week as I'm working, I'm talking to him about it. I mumble my prayer for guidance and I ask for him to give me help to get through it. And I think I may have mumbled a prayer for a car to run me over and save me from any more of life. When I got home, I thought, how am I ever going to get through these nine verses with a sermon? I figured there would be a lot of filler and not much detail. However, Being hugely tired and saying out loud to the Lord, I don't think that I can do this today, I began studying. Where I begged for relief from the task, I began to beg for relief from any distractions. Every word and every detail pointed to Christ, and all I could do was wish for more. Give me more of you, O Lord. Thanking the Lord once again for having surprised me with an overwhelming abundance of detail. Our text verse comes from Psalm 132, it's verse 7. Let us go into his tabernacle, let us worship at his footstool. Nine short verses that simply won't wait another moment to be looked into. Let's skip the fluff and dive right into them. Christ is there. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first Two thoughts today is a willingly made offering. It's verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Vedaber Yehovah el Moshe lemor. And spoke Yehovah to Moses, saying. The first verse of the chapter is an offset verse as an anticipatory statement. Normally, when saying something like, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, the same verse will contain at least a little portion of what the Lord said. This, however, is not the case here. Instead, the words are given by themselves. In this, it makes the chapter a verse longer than it would have otherwise been, and thus the book of Exodus is also a verse longer. And so the whole Bible is also a verse longer. Because of the obvious patterns which run through Scripture based on verse divisions, it is always interesting to highlight these offset verses. 
In the case of this one, it is the only one to be found in the entire chapter, but even more, it is the main introduction for everything from now until Exodus 30, verse 10. Everything that is recorded between those two verses is one running commentary of instruction from the Lord to Moses. The record of the Bible is that no break at all is found in the instruction during all of this period. This then is 197 verses of detailed instruction which Moses was given at one time in order to show us Christ. It is an amazing amount of information, but because it was all given at one time, we will also evaluate it all at one time. This means that this sermon will last for the next 37 hours without a break. So I hope you ate breakfast. Seriously, though, these verses through Exodus 30, verse 10, are laid out precisely and with intent. As an overall brushstroke of what lies ahead, these are the major sections of instruction which are given. The first is the offerings of the people for the tabernacle, which we're looking at today. The details for the construction and care of the tabernacle. The ark of the testimony in the mercy seat. The table of, for the show bread. The gold lampstand, meaning the menorah, and then the tabernacle, the dwelling place, and the tent. The altar of burnt offering, the court of the tabernacle, the care of the lampstand, garments for the priesthood, which included the ephod, the breastplate, and other priestly garments, the consecration of Aaron and his sons, the daily offerings, and finally the altar of incense. As verse 1 notes, it is the Lord who gives all of the instructions for this dwelling place and all of its associated care. The Book of the Covenant with its main civil, political, and social laws were imparted to Moses, who then presented them to Israel. These laws were both moral and judicial in nature. They agreed to them, and then this was confirmed in the cutting of the covenant and the partaking of the covenant meal. However, to this point, no form of worship or specified conduct for the necessary religious rites has been given with the exception of the instructions for the earthen altar. This section begins that process. This will be the ceremonial aspects of the law. In order to ensure that the people would remember and follow the Lord who had become their God, and to ensure that they would fix their eyes, their heart, and their attention on him alone, the instructions that follow are necessary. They will have a priest to minister. They will have the implements of that priesthood for him to do so properly. And they will have a place where he could effectively conduct the rituals. It should be noted that the design and materials for this ritual worship are all going to be instructed by God specifically and precisely. The reason for this is that if it were left to the people to construct the tabernacle and to design all of the associated implements, it wouldn't properly reflect who he is. The design would be arbitrary and without any real connection to the holiness of the Lord. Looking at the countless religions of the world and the often tragic ways in which they worship their gods, it's not surprising that the Lord will give such minute detail for worshiping him. And this is so important to proper worship that these instructions will be given first in chapters 25 through 31 as a divine call from the Lord. Then they will be repeated after they're accomplished to show complete adherence was effected to what was mandated. This will be a historical record of the fulfillment of the command and will comprise most of chapters 35 through 40. In New Testament Christianity, there is no such specificity given for the worship of the Lord. There are big churches and there are little ones. There are 10,000 styles of them as well, and they meet at whatever time they feel is acceptable for the congregation. The New Testament believer is to worship in spirit and in truth, with very little to instruct us in how to conduct ourselves during the times of worship, with the noted exception that our conduct is to be centered on the study, the explanation, and the application of the Word of God. Unlike us, however, the minute and precise instructions for tabernacle construction will be given first with the making of the Ark of the Covenant. This is the place where the Lord will manifest himself to the high priest. The final instructions in chapter 30 will deal with the altar of incense. This altar of incense was to stand immediately in front of the ark. Therefore, the layout of the next six chapters is specific and purposeful. As Kyle and Delich note, they say the dwelling was erected round Jehovah's seat and round this the court. The priest's 
first of all presented sacrifices upon the altar of burnt offering and then proceeded into the holy place and drew near to Jehovah. The highest act in the daily service of the priests was evidently this standing before Jehovah at the altar of incense, which was only separated by the curtain from the most holy place. In Exodus 17, while at Massa and Meribah, the people contended with Moses and tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The tabernacle would be a permanent reminder to them that he was, in fact, among them. And even more, because they were in the wilderness and dwelling in tents, this royal and kingly edifice would likewise be a tent. When they broke down and moved, he would also move with them. This would continue all the way through the time of the judges and even until the time when Solomon would build a permanent edifice to the Lord. In the same way, Jesus came and he pitched his tent among us. He dwelt as we dwell. He moved as we move and his tent was not unlike our own. Israel was given instructions for the place where the Lord would dwell and it would only be a reflection of the more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Everything about what they would construct was given to testify to the people of Israel that the Lord had made his abode among them. Each aspect of it, from the materials used and the form of construction to the rituals associated with them pictured the work of the Lord Jesus. In other words, everything, every single thing that lies ahead testifies to the coming Messiah, the incarnate word of God. This even includes the seemingly unrelated aspect of obtaining the materials for the construction. Where they're collected and from where they have come are in themselves pictures of Christ. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering. With Moses having ascended to the Lord, the first words recorded here are not, welcome Moses, sit down and let's talk. Rather, they immediately begin with a command to him, speak to the children of Israel. Whatever they may have said prior to this is not the concern of the account. There are no superfluities recorded here, only precision and determined purpose. And what he is to speak to them concerns an offering. The word is terumah. This is the first of 76 times that this word is going to be used in the Bible. It's mostly found in Exodus, Numbers, and Ezekiel, but also in quite a few of the other books of the Old Testament. It means a present as offered up especially in sacrifice or as a tribute. A terumah can be voluntary or it can be prescribed, but either way, it is something that is presented upwards. It comes from the word rum, which means to be high or exalted. Thus, one can see the idea of something being offered up, like an oblation. In the case of this offering, the Lord is requiring it from the people for the purpose of building him a tent. From the external appearance of it, it'll seem rather mundane, and yet... The interior will be grand, it will be beautiful, and it will be pure. The parallel to Israel then should have been evident. They were a group of people like any other, and yet they were to be a grand people, beautiful to God and pure in their lives and conduct. As the abode of their king was, so were they to be. And so the offering was requested of them in the same manner as the offerings of any subjects appearing before their king would be made. They were to bring from their own stores that which would be lifted up as a special gift for this precious dwelling. And yet, there was nothing compulsory about this particular offering. Unlike a large percentage of the other offerings which will be noted in Scripture, this one was to be wholly voluntary. Verse 2 continues, From everyone who gives it willingly, with his heart, you shall take my offering. The Hebrew here reads, Kal ish asher yedeveno libo. Literally, of every man whose heart impels him. This is the first of 18 times that the word nadav will be used. It means to incite or to impel. It's the kind of willingness that would impel a person to volunteer as a soldier after their country was attacked. It would also be the type of offering somebody would make when a great need arose in a community or a church. They would see the need and their heart would impel them forward to meet the need. This is exactly what the Lord is looking for. It is the same sentiment that Paul uses in the New Testament concerning one's giving in church for any reason. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he gives one of only two specific verses concerning giving during our dispensation of grace. There he wrote this, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. There was nothing to be forced upon the people for this most sacred of habitations. 
Rather, the bestowal of the offerings was solely up to how their heart urged them on. On the giving of the gifts and in the use of them after they have been given, Matthew Henry writes the following, The best use that we can make of our worldly wealth is to honor God with it in works of piety and charity. We should ask not only what must we do, but what may we do for God. What is laid out in the service of God we must reckon well bestowed, and whatever is done in God's service must be done by his direction. Verse 3, and this is the offering which you shall take from them. For the third time in just two verses, the word teruma, or offering, is used. The things are to be presented, they are an offering or an oblation to the Lord. They are to be willingly given, not demanded, and they are to come from the people. All things are from the Lord, and he could have demanded these things as a compulsory tax. But this was not how it was to be. There will be taxes and other compulsory gifts, but these were to be solely from their heart. And the list begins with three medals. It's not at all unlikely that there would have been an immense amount of each of these. Okay, I want everybody to understand that because this is one of the things that people say about the Bible is, that, oh, they couldn't have had all of these materials out there. But that's not true. And we know this. First, the sheer number of people meant that if every family had just a little bit of each metal, it would add up to an immense amount. These metals would have been accumulated over the centuries. They would have been plundered from the Egyptians when they left and even plundered from the Amalekites during that battle. The metals are named here. First, verse 3 continues, gold. The word is zahav. Gold is the finest of the biblical metals. In the Bible, it spiritually indicates purity and holiness, royalty and divinity. It is one of the two metals that have its own natural color, which is not silver. Thus, it is both a metal and a color. And not surprisingly, both are associated with kingship. It is precious because of its rarity and it is valuable. Throughout history, it has been used as a basis for monetary systems, and it is the standard by which the value of other things is set. It is also considered an incorruptible metal. Verse 3 continues, silver, vekeseth, and silver. Silver is another precious metal which is associated in particular with a major subject of the Bible, redemption. Kesef comes from another word, kasaf, which means to be eager or to long for. Thus, we have a hidden pun from Paul's hand concerning redemption and our longing for it. He says, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The root from this state of eagerness means to become pale. Thus, the color of silver, which is pale, finds its source. Our redemption is something that we eagerly await. And in so awaiting, our countenance is pale, waiting to be filled with the resplendent glory of the Lord. Throughout history, silver has been used as one of the major mediums of monetary exchange. This is especially evident in biblical history, where it is almost synonymously used with money. This is so much so that translators quite often translate the word kesef, or silver, as money rather than silver. And in a large portion of these instances, the silver or kesef is noted in the purchase or redemption of people, materials, or objects. Verse 3 continues, and bronze, unechoshet. The metal here is called bronze, but it refers to copper and its alloys. For example, in Deuteronomy 8 verse 9, using this same word and speaking of the land of Canaan, it says, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. However, the King James Version incorrectly translated that verse as brass instead of copper. Brass is an alloy, and it is not dug out of the ground. And it was too early in history for brass to have been a part of the metal-making process. Rather, copper is dug from the ground in an impure state, and then it's refined to become pure, or it is mixed with other elements to become an alloy. The metals, whether copper, bronze, or brass, get their color from the copper, which is the other rare metal that possesses a natural color, which is not silver. The nechoshet, or bronze, hasn't been seen since Genesis 4, verse 22. But from this point on, it's going to become a common word. It mainly symbolizes judgment, but also endurance. Like the other two metals, their symbolism for this will be seen throughout the rest of the Bible and in both Testaments. This judgment can be negative, 
such as in the case of bronze fetters being worn by those who have been sentenced for a crime. Or it can be used in a pictorial judgment, such as that found in the curses of Deuteronomy 28, verse 23, where it says, um, your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze. That is a picture of rainless skies, heat, and anguish. However, the judgment can also be one of purification and justification. This is seen time and time and time again as well. But one fine example of it is that of the brazen serpent of Numbers chapter 21. There the people sinned against the Lord and the Lord judged them for it. However, at the same time as bringing judgment upon them, he gave them grace and a chance to be justified by mere faith. Here's the account from Numbers 21. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people of the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Following the literal, spiritual, and pictorial meanings of these metals throughout all of the Bible, you will find consistency and marvelous pictures of Christ. The same is true with colors. Verse 4, blue, utekalet, literally, and blue. This is the first time that tekalet, or blue, is mentioned in the Bible. It is believed to come from the word shechalet, which is the cerulean muscle. It's a muscle that lives in the ocean. In other words, the color obtained from that muscle or that is dyed with it. Blue in the Bible is associated with the law, especially the keeping of the law. This is seen explicitly in Numbers chapter 15 with these words. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look at, look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. Verse 4 continues, purple, argaman. Again, this is the first use of the word in the Bible. It is purple or blue-red. The color in the Bible, like many other cultures, is one of royalty, or that which pertains or belongs to a king. As it is a mixture of blue and red, in meaning it is thus a combination of what those two colors mean. The law for blue and war, blood, and or judgment for red, as we now see. Verse 4 continues, and scarlet thread, betulaat shani, literally, and from worms, red. Two words are used to describe the color. The first is tola. This is actually a worm known as the crimson grub. However, here it is used only in this manner concerning the color from it and the cloths dyed with it. The second is the word shani, which means scarlet. Taken together, they are translated as scarlet, but implying the scarlet which comes from the tola or the crimson grub worm. The double word implies that to strike this color, the wool or cloth was twice dipped, according to Adam Clark. The scarlet or red in the Bible pictures and symbolizes war, blood, and or judgment. All of these colors picture the future work of Christ. Verse 4 continues, fine linen, veshesh, literally, and linen. This is only the second time that shesh has been seen in the Bible. The first was when Joseph, who himself was a marvelous picture of Christ, was clothed in fine linen after interpreting Pharaoh's prayers and being elevated to his high and exalted position in the land. The symbolism of the shesh, or fine linen, is explicitly explained in the book of Revelation. Here's what it says there. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Therefore, the linen symbolizes righteousness. Verse 4 continues, and goat's hair. Ve'izim, literally, and goats. It is the plural of the word ez, or female goat, 
but it is masculine in the plural here to indicate goat's hair. Hair in the Bible gives us a picture of awareness. Esau was a hairy man, and he pictured fallen Adam aware of sin. The goat is a picture of punishment on sin. The hairy goat offering was one of sin offerings, but more so, the goats are only used in sin offerings. Other animals might be used for several other offerings, but goats were always used for judgment on sin. Therefore, the goat's hair pictures awareness of sin and that it will be punished. Verse 5, ramskins dyed red. Ve'orot elim me'adamim, literally, and skins of rams dyed red. The ram is the leader of the flock. It's protector. The protection is seen in its power to butt with its horns, which are also a symbol of strength in the Bible. The symbolism we are to see then is that of Christ, the protector of his people. The verb for dyed red or adom is found 10 times in the Bible. It comes from the idea of being made red or to show blood in the face. The use of these ram skins dyed red will picture Christ's covering of our sins. It is explained by the use of adom in Isaiah with these words, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red, that word adom, like crimson, they shall be as wool. After this, Paul explains how this points to Christ in his second letter to the Corinthians with these words. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 5 continues, badger skins. Ve'orot techashim, literally, and skins of porpoise. The word here is tahash, and it is always governed by the word orot, or skins. Therefore, it is certainly the height of an animal. The translation of the King James Version and the New King James Version of badgers is dubious at best. The badger is rarely, if ever seen, in the Sinai, and it lacks any cognate language support. Rather, this word is cognate to the Arabic word tuhash. You can hear the similarity, tehashim and tuhash, or porpoise. Therefore, in modern translations, it is normally called either the porpoise, the dolphin, or the dugong, which is an animal very similar to our manatee here in Florida. Thus, it would be a light gray to sky blue covering. This is the first of 14 times it is used in the Bible, and it is always used in connection with the covering for the tabernacle, with but one exception in the book of Ezekiel chapter 16, where it is used to describe figurative sandals worn by the city of Jerusalem. As Bedouins still use the dugong for such sandals, even in modern times, such a sea animal is the most likely translation. As this skin will be used as the outermost covering of the tabernacle, the skin of a marine animal, like the dolphin, would have been eminently suitable for both its toughness and for its waterproofing properties. As the sea is representative of the world of chaos and confusion and rebellion, this would then make a beautiful picture of Christ's covering of us from that. This will fit well also with the one non-tabernacle use of the word, which is in Ezekiel, concerning the sandals made of this skin. Having such skin for shoes would then infer that the chaos of the sea was underfoot and subdued. Verse 5 continues, and acacia wood. Ba'atse shittim, literally, and wood acacias. This is the first of 28 times that shita or acacia wood, is used in the Bible. Acacia is a very slow-growing tree that would be readily available in the area where they were. Its heartwood is dark reddish-brown, and it is beautiful when it's sanded and polished. It's like the cypress here in Florida, which is resistant to decay because it deposits in its heartwood waste substances, which turn into preservatives. This renders it unpalatable to insects. It's also dense and difficult to be penetrated by water and other decaying agents. Thus, it is considered an incorruptible wood. Therefore, it pictures the incorruptible nature of Christ's humanity. This will be seen as the implements for this tabernacle are constructed. And I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to give you an example so you can understand the incorruptible nature of this wood in comparison to Florida Cypress. My grandmother lived right down the road from me, down at Celsius to Key. And she got termites in her house. Okay, And the inside of the house was lined with cypress. But the walls, the stud walls, were made of Florida dade pine. And the, the uh, insects got into the house, the termites, and they ate all of the stud walls. 
and they ate right up to the cypress and they didn't eat the cypress one little bit. It was as perfect as the day it was milled. So you can see how this pictures Christ in his impeccability and in his, his incorruptibility. Verse 6, oil for the light. Shemen la meor. The noun shemen or oil comes from the verb shamen, which means to grow fat. The oil will be used throughout the Bible as a picture of that of the presence of the spirit. In this case, it would be for spiritual understanding, specifically that which provides illumination. Verse 6 continues, and spices for the anointing oil. Besamim le shemen ha The word bosem or spice is introduced into the Bible here, and it's going to be used 30 times. It means fragrance, and so by implication, spicery. It is also the balsam plant, which has a sweet odor. One can hear the similarity in the sound between the English balsam and the Hebrew bosem. These spices would be used for anointing those designated for a particular task. The spiritual picture here is that of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, first for Christ's work, and then that which is given to us through Christ's work. A simple yet direct verse which shows us this is found in Luke chapter 4. It says there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Verse 6 continues, And for the sweet incense, Velectoret hasamim. These two words, ketoret, or incense, and psalm, or fragrant, are both used for the first time in Scripture. The Bible explicitly explains what incense pictures, and therefore we need go no further than what it says. Here's what it says in Revelation 5, verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This will be further explained as we travel through the instructions from the Lord to Moses. Verse 7, onyx stones, avne shoham, literally stones, onyx. We already met this stone, shoham, once before, way back in Genesis 2, verse 12. We can't be adamant about what it actually is, but it will be seen a total of 10 times in Scripture. Here's one from Exodus 28. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stone in order of their birth with the work of an engraver in stone. Like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. These will be explained when we get to that passage. Verse 7 continues, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And now we have a few new words, once again, introduced into the Bible. The first is milu, or setting, which is used just 15 times. The stones are to be set into place. This word also means ordination, where someone is set into a position. The next is ephod. It's a word that will be used 49 times. In this case, it means a girdle, specifically the ephod for the high priest's shoulder piece, but it also generally means an image. And the last word is hoshen. This is a word which comes from another unused root, probably meaning to contain or sparkle, perhaps a pocket or rich as containing gems. They're not really sure what the word means. It is used only of the breastplate of the high priest. It is seen only 23 times in Exodus and twice in Leviticus. These will be explained in detail in those passages. Christ is there in every detail of the book, waiting for us to study and show ourselves approved. What a marvel when we open it up and look, how our souls are stirred, how our hearts are moved. Christ is there. It all speaks of him and his work. What he has done for us was all told in advance. Let us not fail to look for him. Let us not this obligation shirk. Each discovery is like joining in a heavenly dance. Thank you for this marvel, your precious, superior word. It is filled with wonder. It is beautiful and marvelous. Christ is there in every detail. It's all about our Lord. Yes, every single verse tells us of our Lord Jesus. Our second thought today is a sanctuary to dwell in, which is verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary. This is the purpose of everything that has thus far been told to Moses. 
all of the specifics requested by the Lord as a free will offering were for the purpose of making a mikdash or a sanctuary. The mikdash has only been named in a general sense in Exodus and only once, Exodus 15, verse 17. This was in the Song of Moses and it spoke of the sanctuary of the Lord, the place where he dwells, specifically the land of Canaan, but more especially the eternal dwelling place for the saints. Now a specific mikdash is named for construction and it has a very specific purpose. Verse eight continues that I may dwell among them. Veshachanti betokam, and I will dwell in their midst. I said while looking at verse one that Though it is true that the materials needed to be collected in order to build the tabernacle, the fact that they are collected and from where they have come are in themselves pictures of Christ. What I meant is that the same materials which are being used to build this tabernacle found their source in the world, especially Egypt. This was seen at the time of the Exodus with these words. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her, her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. The Lord set it up so that Israel could plunder the Egyptians for a specific purpose, so that he could build a tabernacle that he might dwell in their midst. This is exactly what Jesus Christ did in his coming. The world of Egypt, as was clearly seen in those sermons, was a picture of the world of sin where fallen man dwells. In Christ, God plundered from humanity in order to build his greater and eternal temple where he would dwell, meaning the person of Jesus Christ. He did it in that Christ came from the stream of humanity. He came through the sinful world of humanity to dwell among us, even though he was without sin. This was just as the tabernacle was built from the land of Egypt, and yet it would be a pure and undefiled place for him to dwell. This verse of Exodus 25 is perfectly realized in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word in, in uh, Greek there is skenao. It means to tabernacle. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And just as incredible, he has now done it from his people who have become living stones in his temple. We were plundered, as it were, from the devil. And yet we are being built into a holy temple in which Christ will dwell for all eternity in our midst. Every word that we are seeing today is simply a picture of a greater spiritual truth. Verse 9 finishes our verses today. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so shall you make it. Two final words are introduced into scripture here. The first is tavnit. This is the first of 20 times it's going to be used. It comes from bana, which means to build. It indicates a structure, by implication, a model or a resemblance. In these instructions, there will be a pattern or a model for Moses to work with. The second and final new word of this passage is mishkan or tabernacle. It is the place where the Lord will dwell or tabernacle among his people. As we continue to see the details for its construction, we will need to continuously remind ourselves that what we are seeing is a picture of our Lord in a physical representation. If we can remember this, then we must be certain that every single detail will point to him and his ministry. We need to treat the coming passages as carefully and meticulously as we have these nine verses today, understanding that we are being given pictures of the greatest glory that we could ever, ever imagine. It goes unstated how Moses was shown what to make, whether he was shown something as if an artist drawing, or whether it was a sculptured model, or whether it was impressed upon his mind supernaturally, or maybe even he was given a glimpse at what these things actually picture by being a, given a glimpse of heaven. We don't know. What the Bible does tell us is that he saw a pattern. This is confirmed by the words of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 44. And what the Bible tells us further is that there is a reason for this specificity. It is explained in Hebrews chapter 8. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, Therefore, it is necessary that this one, meaning Christ, also has something to offer. 
For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. These minute details are given because the Mishkan, or tabernacle, is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. The precision was needed because it deals with the very dwelling place of the Lord in heaven. Let's close this splendid thought concerning this detail from the pen of Joseph Benson. When Moses was to describe the creation of the world, though it be such a stately and curious fabric, yet he gave a very short and general account of it. But when he comes to describe the tabernacle, he doth it with the greatest niceness and accuracy imaginable. For God's churches and instituted religion are more precious to him than all the rest of the world. And all the scriptures were written not to describe to us the works of nature, meaning a general view of which is sufficient to lead us to a knowledge of the creator, but to acquaint us with the methods of grace and those things which are purely matters of revelation. It should go without saying that God really, really wants us to see his son in every detail of what he has given to us in scripture. As this is so, wouldn't we be wise to search him out while he can be found? Wouldn't that be the right thing to do? We don't know our last moment. It could be 50 years away or it could be five minutes from now. Let us use our time wisely and search out Christ who alone can reconcile us to our creator. If you've never taken the simple, simple step of receiving him as your savior, I would pray that today would be the day. Let me tell you how you can be sure of a heavenly home with him who is pictured by the many details we've seen here. Very simple. The Bible shows that there is a tragic state of affairs for man. Our first father was given one command. It was in the negative, don't do this thing, and he did it. He violated God's word, and sin came into the world through him. And all people have sinned because of Adam. We are born in sin, according to the Psalms, even from the moment of our conception. We have Adam's stain of sin on us, and so we're already separated from our creator. There's nothing that we can do to be reconciled to God on our own. We cannot work our way to heaven. And we've seen pictures of people trying to do this already through the Bible, and we'll see them all the way through. People working their little towers of Babel, trying to get back to heaven, doing little deeds of righteousness that can never satisfy an angry God, a God who is fiercely angry at the sins of humanity. Only God can reconcile it, and he did. He stepped out of his eternal realm, all pictured by the things we're going to be seeing in the weeks ahead and he united with human flesh. Coming from this stream of humanity, which he plundered, and we saw some of those today, Ahithophel goes to Jesus. Bathsheba goes to Jesus. Rahab the harlot goes to Jesus. All these people, these wicked people, all the way through the Bible, lead to the pure and unstained, undefiled Redeemer. It's amazing. He plundered humanity, and yet he comes out perfect, pure, and holy just as we're seeing. And then he lived that life under that law that he's giving to us perfectly. The law only condemns us. Paul explains that in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. It's only there to show us how utterly sinful sin is and to show us our desperate need for something else, one who can fulfill the law in our place. And so he did. He fulfilled it. And then in the greatest act of grace and mercy in all of human history, he gave that sinless, perfect life up on the cross of Calvary in order to take away your sin. He says, if you'll simply look to the cross, just as the people in the Old Testament look to the, the serpent on the pole, by an act of faith alone, I will impute to you my righteousness, and you will be as if you have never sinned in the eyes of God. And without him, there is no reconciliation with him. But through Jesus Christ, there is fellowship. There's a propitious relationship. You stand justified by the things this law could never do. And it's all pictured in what we're looking at today. Please, if you've never taken the time to simply ask Christ to forgive you of your sins, do it today. Okay? Our uh, closing verse today comes from the 84th Psalm. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Next week is Exodus 25. It's verses 10 through 22. For our senses, it will be a real treat. It's entitled The Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. That'll be our 68th Exodus sermon. 
I'd like to tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? I have a poem based on these nine verses as I do each week. And uh, if you follow along in the King James Version, it's very close to the original. It's uh, entitled, A Willingly Made Offering. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the words to Moses he then was relaying. Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly, this I tell, from his heart he shall make my proffering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. So I have said, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair too, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood. This you shall do. Oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense for the perfumer's toil. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod, in the breastplate. These you shall not forget. And let them a sanctuary make me that I may dwell among them, so shall it be. According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle, one that is fit, and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. The Lord gave instructions for the tabernacle, so that he could dwell among the children of Israel, and he requested from them the offering, so that the heart of their hearts he could tell. Would they give the best of all they had? Would they bring for him these things he noted? It would be only right for them to provide these because upon them his affection he had doted. And so it should be with us. Each of us should give our very best for God gave his son, our Lord Jesus. And so let us not fall short in our test. Let us give of our time, our abilities, and our treasure and let us be willing to do so even without measure. For he is a great God and so let us to him our voices raise and let us give him to the, the best of our lives as an offering of praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, it is good to be in your presence and to come to the courts of your tabernacle. We look forward to the day when we stand in your presence and look at you, behold your glory, and say, there is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, I can't wait for that day personally. I'd like to hear that trumpet sound right now and just whisk us away. But whenever it will be, whether it be through this life and then death or at the calling of the sound, we'll all be pleased to be in that presence and to just behold you for all eternity. What else could we ask for? There's nothing that my soul yearns for more than seeing you. And I'm sure every person here feels the same. What a great God you are. How absolutely splendid and wonderful. Lord, you know the prayers that have been laid before you for the people that are sick and uh, the uh, needs that were raised up by Paul before the service. And uh, we want to repeat that right now for all of them and for safe travels for the people that are here that are visiting or on their way back home or for uh, just a, a safe week in the week, safe week in the days ahead for each person here. Lord, we thank you for your many, many blessings upon us. You're so gracious and good to us. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you, our Lord, our Savior, our King, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, we read these words from the hand of Paul. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam HaMotzi Lechem Min HaAretz Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty 
of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this table we can come to and celebrate the death of our Jesus Christ. And yes, I say celebrate, because without that death, there would be no forgiveness of our sins. But even more, we can anticipate the return of Christ. How wonderful that day will be, and we long for it to happen. If we could, we'd speed you along, but you take your time. According to your will, we will be here, obedient to your will, following in your precepts and studying your word. We thank you for this precious word, how good you are to us to reveal Jesus in it. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. We commit ourselves to you in the week ahead, praying that you will look over us and tend to us. How good you are to us, O oh God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.